We're going to look at another psalm in a couple weeks, but I wanted us to look at some psalms of lament this year because I'm convinced one of the issues that plagues the church is that we do not know how to cry out to God well when we suffer. We just think, well, I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to put on a happy face, and that's it. But the Bible would have us deal with lament, deal with suffering, I think, unfortunately differently than I think many of us do in the church. And unfortunately, it's to our, to our detriment. So this is one of those Sundays that to just preach through the text, look through the text twice, would take a little too long. So we're going to be looking at the text in chunks. And honestly, to like preach it line by line expositionally, I think it would take like two or three weeks. I'm not going to do that to you. But my, my hope today, my hope today is that we understand the big concepts that are given to us in the psalm of lament so that when we look at another psalm of lament in a couple weeks, we're able to take those big concepts that we've learned and apply them specifically to where we are at. That's my hope for today. That's the goal. So let me pray for us and let's get going. Father God. We ask for your spirit's presence here today. Lord, as we look at the text, as we consider these big topics, these hard heart topics, I ask that you would give us peace. For those of us that have, are either in a season of suffering or lament, I pray for comfort for those people. Because when you look at psalms about suffering and laments, when you're in the midst of it, I know it can be difficult. So I ask that we would be the church and we would love those around us that are currently in that season. In your son's name I pray, amen. I'm going to release the children's to children's church at this time. You guys are dismissed. Thank you for those who make that ministry here happen. I want to open today's service with two stories. Because I think that will give us a good modern picture as we look at this song. Before I got saved, I was on a pretty long leash. Plus, it was like the 90s, right? So, like, your parents could tell you, come home for dinner. And then you would disappear into the neighborhood for hours at a time. And so, I would disappear into the neighborhood. And I did a lot of wonderful, innocent things, right? Like, we played every sport you could think of. If there was woods that we could explore, we explored every inch. If there were snakes to torment, we tormented snakes, Right? Um, I mean, we had a blast as kids. There were so many bike trails that you could just get lost on for hours. And by lost on, I mean literally lost. I had to ask a neighbor to call my mom one time because I did indeed get lost in the neighborhood. I didn't know where, where I was. Um, but it wasn't always innocent, right? Because I was a 10 or 11-year-old boy. So this is in my pre-saved days, okay? I'm not like, this is what you should do with your time, okay? So one of these days, I'm on the bike trail. We'd stop to gaze at the lake. So it was lake, bike trail, houses. And me and my buddy, who will remain unnamed for his safety, were gazing at the alligator about 100 feet away, right? Alligators don't scare us if you're Floridian. You're used to those. And we noticed, as we were staring at this alligator, a beautiful grapefruit tree in the yard behind us. I mean, we were you know, soon to be scientists in the world at the age of 10. And so we had two experiments that immediately came to mind, staring at that grapefruit tree. First one, 
how big of a splash would you create with a good-sized grapefruit as you tossed it high into the air like a grenade? Second, how would the alligator react if you hit it with a grapefruit, throwing it like a grenade? Now, there are two of us. There are two science experiments, and we know we only get one shot at this. The moment the grapefruit hits around the alligator, he's going to drop. So we got the biggest grapefruits you could get on that tree. Okay? Biggest ones we'd get. And we counted down. Three, two, one. Past the gator and wide right. Like, it, we missed it. Gator disappeared. And the splash of a grapefruit of a 10-year-old tossing it, not that impressive. Right? Now, what scared us wasn't the gator. Okay? We're used to gators as Floridians, and gators are not revenge creatures, right? If you torment a gator, it doesn't like remember your name and I'm going to haunt you, right? But the old man whose grapefruit tree we had taken from him had been sitting on his lanai the whole entire time watching us engage in this buffoonery. And he started yelling at us at the top of his lungs. And we jumped on our bikes so fast and booked it out of sight, right? He's threatening to call the cops, and he might have because they were around the neighborhood later that day, right? But we had done something wrong. We had stolen grapefruits off his tree, and if we had been caught by the cops, it would have been just for them to punish us. We never, ever tossed grapefruits again while he was home. <laughs> at the same time, about the same age, with the same buddy, we attended a lock-in at a bowling alley. Okay, For those of you that don't know what a lock-in is, it's when your parents drop you off at like 10 p.m. at night, you bowl and play video games and have all the soda you want until like 8 a.m. where they pick you up. Real wise to do that for, you know, teenagers. And so I go with my buddy. You know, we have $10 in video game cards, too. We're having a blast. And so it's like 2, 3 a.m. I'm not going to get in trouble here because there's no grapefruits. Don't worry. But at 2, 3 a.m., we've run out of video game money. So we're watching the rich kids who can buy more tokens play more video games at 2, 3 a.m. And we catch wind, like distance between you and me, Trent, right, of another, let's call him a gaggle, because I think a gang would probably be insulting, a gaggle of teenagers who were over by the basketball machine, everyone's favorite game, right? And one of them had climbed up on top of the machine because they were poor too, they were out of money too and was reaching behind the bumper, tossing his friends the balls, and they were shooting basketballs. Now, staff got wind of this from across the room and started yelling at those gaggle of kids, get off the basketball machine. And so they scattered. And because there was now nothing else to watch, I left too. But you know who was dressed suspiciously like the kid who was tossing basketballs on top of the machine that day? 
And you know who spent the next hour in an office paying for a crime that I did not commit? It didn't matter how many excuses I gave them. It did not matter how many tears I shed. I was paying for a crime I never committed. Two stories, two outcomes. And if we're honest, both undeserving outcomes. And honestly, both stories are a little bit childish. Many of us have experienced far worse when it comes to these type of stories to deal, be dealt with unjustly. Have you been there? Have you been the innocent party who happened to suffer the consequences of someone else's actions? Have you felt like you didn't deserve something that happened to you or your family? A poor grade because a member of a group project at school didn't do their portion of the job? Wrong place at a party that leads to someone getting hurt. Losing a job because of a mistake in management, and you end up paying for it. A change in church because of someone else's sin. Cancer for a child. A drunk driver that changes family holidays. Debilitating illnesses for a parent. Let's be real. Life doesn't seem fair because life is not fair. My guess is many of us have asked the question, why me? Where are you, God? What, what did I do to deserve this? And if you've asked those questions, I want you to know that you're not alone in this room today. And more importantly, you need to know this. It, it's not necessarily a sin for you asking those questions. You're not necessarily in sin for lamenting. Over one-third of the Psalms in Scripture are lament. It is there for you and I to learn how to suffer, to call out to God, to cry out disappointment in a way that is ultimately beneficial for our souls, even in the midst of the valley of the shadow. We need to talk about this more in churches. My fear, especially with young people, is that they think that being a Christian means putting on a smile when life is hard. And if you don't, well, that means you don't have enough faith. You aren't a good Christian. Understand this. To be a healthy Christian means to have good theology of suffering and lament. To be a healthy Christian, not to be a Christian, but to be a healthy Christian means that we must have a good theology of suffering and lament. My fear is that far too much of the church simply gives us bumper sticker sayings in the midst of really hard things. We're quick to be Job's friends, aren't we? Give pithy cliches to try to give the philosophical answer for every bad thing that happens. When what was the best thing that Job's friends could have done? Shut up. 
and just sit with somebody. But it's really hard for us to do that. To mourn, to weep, to cry out to God in the midst of difficult things. Psalm 22 teaches us how to do that. It shows us how Jesus suffered too. And the hope that we have in a future without suffering, without lament. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 22 this morning. We're going to do a big chunk to begin with, Psalm 22, 1 through 23. Hear the words of the Lord. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In You, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they were trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. And I am poured out like water, and all my bones out of joint, my heart like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potter shed, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me, and company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. This section seems at times to be the rambling prayer of an innocent man. Because that's what it is. 
It is a, a man at the end of himself not knowing what to do. We see a prayer of the innocent here. And the beginning of the psalm is so profound that I want us to sit in it. Because it is the heartbeat of the psalm. If you understand the first couple words, it begins to unlock the rest of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? David here expresses what seems to be contradictory statements. He calls out to God as if he is near and then inquires why God seems so far away. But I think that if you're in here and you're human, that this is a very human sentiment. When wrestling with death early on in life, I know my heart echoed these very words. Why God? Even when I was an atheist, these words would spring to my lips in times of despair. But why would my heart leap here? Why would my heart question a creator that I did not believe in at that portion of my life? I think this next fact is true as we look at the data and as we look at our hearts. You see, justice is written on every human heart. Justice is written on every human heart. I often hear the phrase taken too soon from the mouths of atheists when dealing with death. They were taken too soon. Logically, this is very baffling to me. Think with me. Think with me. If the only thing is true is naturalism and materialism, meaning the only thing that exists is this, right? If the only thing that governs our interactions is Darwinism, if there is no moral lawgiver, but it really is only the survival of the fittest, then when the weak and unlucky are maimed, taken advantage of, or die, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be shocked. If Darwinism is true, that is simply our lot. If there is no God, there is no basis for right and wrong. It truly is a dog-eat-dog -dog world. What is taken too soon or lived so long if it's only survival of the fittest? Then of course the weak and the unlucky will suffer. But our hearts cry for justice. Our hearts cry out, why God? When the innocent suffer, when those who are weak are harmed by those who are powerful. Our hearts say, this is wrong. And that only makes sense in a theistic worldview. That only makes sense if God has written morals on our heart. To me, it's one of the most powerful apologetics. It's the moral argument for the existence of God. It says this. It's very simple. Every law has a lawgiver. Law seems to be written on the human heart. I could spend a whole, I do a lot of apologetics classes before I got here. There's so much data to support this. 
all people's studies of anthropology and all cultures support the second statement. So if every law has a lawgiver and law seems to be written on the human heart, therefore the human heart has a lawgiver. It's simple monus bonus. It's simple logic. That is why David can cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For he knows where justice comes from, and yet the innocent seem condemned. The flow of the psalm works like this. Notice the back and forth, which is what our hearts do in the midst of suffering. First 23 verses work like this. David appeals to God who saved his people before. Sorry, I did put a slide up. It's not in your bulletin because it was too much. David appeals to God who has saved his people before. Yet, still his faith is mocked because of his circumstance. He called out to God from his youth. Yet, his enemies surround him. His courage and faith fade. His enemies surround him still. Yet, he still prays for deliverance. It's this tug of war that we did at camp this week and we dominated. If you were like me, this may have been your circumstances too at some point in this life. And it would be easy to doubt. But one of the great comforts of the Christian life is that we have a God who has also suffered just as much as we have. Much of this psalm is later quoted in reference to Jesus and his suffering on our behalf. Let's just look at the mo moments real quick in the psalm. Psalm 22, 6 and 7. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people, all who see me mock me. <coughs> they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Psalm 22, 16. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Psalm 22, 18. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. You see, because we're New Testament Christians, we're New Testament followers of Yahweh, we see the fullness of this psalm take place in the person of Jesus, for he is the innocent Savior. This is another one of those psalms that we're looking at it and we're going, is it talking about King David or King Jesus? And we can go, yes, it's talking about both. However, there are times where even the original readers and hearers would be scratching their head. Yes, David was mocked and despised by the people who were loyal to Saul. And while evildoers did surround him while he was in the mountains, for the Messiah, they literally surrounded him in death, one on each side. Literally, there were evildoers hanging on the crosses beside him. David's hands and feet were never pierced that were detailed in Scripture. Like, we don't have a story that goes along with this. However, the hands and feet of Jesus were. What's really interesting is that when that's talked about in verse 16, the piercing of hands and feet for torture, crucifixion, that's still hundreds of years from being invented. And yet the psalmist uses these words. Then again at verse 18, there doesn't seem to be a direct correspondence to dividing garments and casting lots for the clothing of David. When this psalm was supposedly written early when Saul was alive. But it is exactly what happened to Jesus at the Roman soldiers. 
This psalm seems to be fulfilled in the life of Jesus. And this is made even more clear when Jesus himself quotes this very psalm while hanging on the cross. Many of you have already sang it today. Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamai sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He quotes this direct psalm of David. You see, if there was ever a truly innocent man that encompasses the words of this psalm, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. When I was at that bowling alley and getting busted for a crime I never committed, I wanted to slug the kid who had committed the crime, right? I didn't like the idea of paying a penalty. Look, even if it was my buddy on top of that basketball machine doing that nonsense, I wouldn't want to sit in a bowling alley office to pay for his crime. There are very few people, no offense to most of you in the room, but there are very few people I'd be willing to pay for their crime, right? If Keith does something stupid, I ain't going to jail for Keith. <laughs> there are very few people. There, I assure you, none of them would be my enemies. None of them would have openly mocked me. None of them would have been against me. But this is the very real case of what happens at the cross. Jesus pays for the sins of the world. He takes the thieving I did with the grapefruits and every other sin I committed and pays the penalty for them. And he does the same for you. If you repent and believe and put your faith in Jesus, that same penalty, that same payment is offered to you which is just a way of saying, follow him. We're called to follow him because he is the one that covers the cost, that pays the penalty for the crimes that we have committed. Let's just be reminded of the gospel real quick. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Look at the person to your left. Look at the person to your right. Look at the person in the mirror. All of you have been sinners. I know that's offensive, right? But all of you have committed sin, heinous sins against a holy God. What does that mean? Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. We deserve to die for our rebellion against God. But my favorite conjunction in scripture happens right after this. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the free gift. Even though all have sinned, even though we deserve death, he offers us a free gift. Namely, eternal life with him if we repent. You see, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but has eternal life. Well, how do we do that? Oh, I didn't put the next one up there. Here's the next one. For with the heart one believes, this is Romans 10, 10, with the, with the heart, not by the heart, but with the heart, one believes and is justified. How is he justified? 
because he looks to the work of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf. And with his mouth, he's conf he confesses with his lips and he's saved. All we need to do is to confess our sins to a holy God and to receive the gospel. It's not by our works, but by his work that one is saved. Jesus is not just the innocent victim. Jesus is not just the innocent victim. Hear me. He's the willing innocent victim. He's the willing innocent victim. He goes to the cross on our behalf, pays for a crime that we have committed fully innocent and willingly because of his deep love and affection for you. For those who have opposed the kingdom of God, for those that are not even Jews, most of us in here are not Jews. He came to save the Gentiles too. That's, that's good news. And we get to be engrafted into the family of Abraham. But I'm convinced this cross of Calvary displays something very important to the world. We talked about the moral argument for God earlier, and I think the existence of a why God attitude, that kind of speaks to it. There's a desire for justice in every human heart, and that means that we should be looking for who gave us that desire for justice. And while many Christians, I think with good hearts, and I think even well, have attempted to answer the question of evil with a theonomy, theonomy is just a big word for an argument for God in the face of evil, I think also what needs to be established is that we have a God that has experienced evil personally. It's one thing to understand that God is opposed to evil. It's a whole other thing to understand that God is one who willingly entered into it, entered into suffering, and effort, entered into lament. For you, you are worth, think about it, you are worth every bit of pain and suffering at Calvary. If it was just for you, he still would have done it. In order that he could walk alongside you and be a God that understands what you're going through, especially when life doesn't seem fair. If anyone can say life isn't fair, it's Jesus. And he had this plan, you know, to make all things new, to bring reconciliation to the world, to the nations, so that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of evil, the goodness of God can shine forth like a light in the world that drives away the darkness, one which the gates of hell cannot stand against. He has this plan for the world which involves reconciliation for all peoples and all things. Look at, look at the rest of the psalm and where it leads. Notice the stark difference. And even in the face of much lament, David is reminded of these truths. Psalm 22, 24 through 31. For he was not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him 
shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. Remember, this is Psalm 2 language, Psalm 1 language that we talked about before, all over again. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to dust, even those who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to the people yet unborn that he has done it. What has he done? He's entered into suffering. He's lamented. And he's overcome it. You see, we have a Savior that has overcome the world. And we can cling tightly to those promises in the midst of suffering and doubt. You see, this is when the dawn comes. When I was sitting in the office of that bowling alley, I spent most of my time staring at that clock. Tick, tick, tick. Kids, there used to be clocks that were circular. <laughs> and it would tick. It wasn't just numbers. Tick, 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 tick. I'd get to see my friends again at the end of the hour. For you, maybe it was staring at the clock in the hospital waiting room. Maybe watching your watch before the trial begins. Maybe setting your alarm before you have to wake up and face the hardest day of your life. And if there is no God, then all you have is tick, 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 tick. But if God exists, if he's real, and he's promised a future beyond anything we can imagine, then there's much more than a clock. And each tick brings us closer to the dawn. You see, when suffering comes into our lives, most of us spend our time trying to get out of it. Well, much of the Bible would have us prepare for suffering so we can figure out what to get out of it. And, pro and I'm promising that if you're in Christ, that you will get through it. It probably won't be for tomorrow. For those of you that are in a season of suffering, suffering right now, it might not be tomorrow. Maybe it is, but it might not be. It might not even be this side of heaven for some of you. But the promise is that he will be with us through the valley of the shadow, not that he will remove the valley. That means that on this side of heaven, time does not heal all wounds. Whoever came up with that is a liar. There will be great tragedies that come in life in which your lips will cry, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And we can reflect the same words of David and Jesus. 
because both of them had a hope in a greater kingdom that is now being fulfilled to us in this earth. I'm going to close with Romans 8, 18 through 25. This is one of those sections of scripture that I like highlighted the whole thing. And I go back to it a lot. Maybe if you like, I need that verse today. Go to your Bibles, highlight Romans 8, 18 through 25. I'm going to read it slowly because I don't want you to miss it. It's rich, it's deep. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, the world, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. We groan inward. We groan. We lament inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. With patience. Church, if you're in a season of lament and suffering, lament. Cry out to God. And in the midst of your cry to God, you're reminded and cling to the truths of Scripture like David did. Like Jesus did as he hung on the cross and cried out the same words that his great, 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 great,